Welcome to Unbalanced.mn. I'm Logan Carroll, and I am joined tonight by my co-host, Miles Bragg. Yo! <laughs> and we are joined, special tonight, by Hannah Jones. Good afternoon. Good to be here. <laughs> we are sitting in my backyard around a bonfire. Uh, we just had a really great conversation uh, with Nasser Kaz and Tracy Gunapalin. Uh, about journalism and activism and what they have in common and what they, you know, where they conflict. Um, that's our main segment for tonight. I think you'll enjoy it. But uh, first, we got a little news. The news. All right. Well, first up from uh, Daily Coast uh, racists and right wingers respond to Chauvin guilty verdict. The online angst amongst white nationalists and other far-right extremists was neck-deep Tuesday following Derek Chauvin's conviction for the murder of George Floyd. Quote, God help you if you're a white male in this anti-white country. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was uh, Andrew Torba, who was the founder of white nationalist friendly chat site Gap. He uh, messaged that to his 3.2 million followers. Many of these uh, reactions were collected by Chuck Tanner at the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights. Michelle Malkin, the so-called Reuter mommy, wrote on Telegram, Chauvin was sacrifice. Why even remain a cop? Reuter added, this system hates you and only needs you to enforce mask regulations. Get a job that won't send you to jail for doing your job. Cassandra Fairbanks, far-right maven, quote, if you're a white police officer, you should quit or move to a rural district. You could be next. Oh, Lord. Rural? I love that they're assuming that, like, people in the country are definitely on our side. No, 100%. No. Everyone there understands what we're getting at. At the Boogaloo Intel Drop channel on Telegram, the racism was more explicit. Oh, more? Oh, even more. Wow. Derek Chauvin quotes... Uh, the cop that legally restrained a feral N-word, George Floyd, was found guilty on all counts. This is not N-word versus pig. This is white in America. This is being white in America. The system is rigged by the international Jew for the subhuman hordes. There's no political solution. End quote. Well, that's Proud Boys? Good. Uh, Proud Boys. Fucking wow. Lord. Wow. That's, that's absolutely vile. In Tucker Carlson's rants on oh. Fox News on Tuesday, he claimed that Chauvin couldn't receive a fair trial, an idea that was echoed widely on far-right channels. Quote, no mob has the right to destroy our cities, he said. No politician or media figure has the right to intimidate a, jur a jury. It's an attack on civilization. So speaking of Tucker Carlson, that leads into our second news item. Ooh. Neo-Nazis praise Tucker Carlson for great replacement rants. Mm. According to Christopher Matias for the Huffington Post, white supremacists have praised Fox News host Tucker Carlson for an ethno-nationalist rant made last week on his show, in which he promoted the Great Replacement Theory and accused the Democrats of trying to replace the current electorate with new, more obedient voters from the Third World. 
who have, quote, absolute contempt for our customs, our laws, and our system. I love how this great replacement theory sort of kind of depends on the logic that any of my white ancestors were like, yes, please, let's let's get them into the picture. Mm-hmm. Like, they're looking at me and going, like, good, the plan is working. <laughs> it's like, no, absolutely not. So earlier in the week, Carlson had doubled down, stating that, quote, demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions, end mm. quote. And that Democrats, quote, plan to seize or plan to change the population of the country to gain political power. So this idea of white genocide was popularized in the U.S. by neo-Nazi David Lane. The belief that Jews are deliberately orchestrating racial demographic changes in order to damage the existing culture can be traced back to pre-World War II Europe through conspiracies like the Elders of Zion, which we've talked about before. Uh-huh. Matthias notes uh, that the Great Replacement Theory has also inspired inspired several horrific acts of violence, including the mass shootings in Pittsburgh, El Paso, and New Zealand, as well as the deadly Unite the Right rally, where neo-Nazis in attendance chanted, Jews will not replace us. Holy shit. Yeah, so this is a a line that has permeated and is already leading to real-world violence. Holocaust denier and Groyper leader Nick Fuentes celebrated that Carlson had, quote, red-pilled four million people. Well, he's not wrong. Yeah, I mean, they have one of the biggest viewerships on cable television. Fuentes specifically was lauding the host's covertly anti-Semitic attacks on Israel and the ADL. Mike Painovich, who hosts the neo-Nazi podcast The Daily Shoah under the pseudonym Mike Enoch, also praised the segment, calling it a breakthrough. Uh, last thing on that, Angelo Caruson of Media Matters fears that Carlson's endorsement of racist, fascist concepts could lead to an even greater violence. He states, quote, The inevitable end in all this is what Carlson has been talking about on his show for quite some time, which is race war. That's what this guy wants. It's what he advocates for. It's what he believes, end quote. Mm. So, yeah, I think Tucker is extremely dangerous. People need to keep an eye on him. And, of course, because no no professional journalist with any credibility is saying what he's saying, he's able to call himself a radical and that he's speaking truth to power. Or a populist. Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm, I'm sure you all have, but have you seen the, the clip of uh, Jon Stewart on... I think it was Crossfire. Ooh, back in the day, like it, it, it's it's like baby Tucker Carlson. No, 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 no. That would be great. And have to, them fight it out. To do a debate would be great, but that's like saying pro wrestling is uh, oh, a show John, about John, athletic John, competition. I, I think you're a good comedian. I think your lectures are boring. Let me ask you. Let me yeah. ask you a question on the news. Now this uh, is theater. I mean, it's it's it is, obvious. No, no, it is, How old are you? Thirty-five. And you wear a bow tie. Yeah, I do. I do. So, I do. so this is... No, no, I know, I know. So You're right. No, no, let me just go. Now, come on. And come listen, on. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you're, that... Not, you're not a smart guy, because those are not easy to tie. But the They're thing difficult. is... That... that brings us to our last one, a little more local piece of information. Minnesota Senate Republican flashes OK symbol on Senate floor. This one's from Bring Me the News, a local outlet. DFLers in Minnesota are claiming a, re- a Republican used a hand gesture linked to white supremacy during an education debate this last Thursday. During a Senate floor debate on a school funding bill, 
Senate, Senator Roger Chamberlain held up his hand, forming a circle with his pointer finger and his thumb with his other fingers outstretched. The Republican from Lionel Lakes was expressing the concept of zero. Zero. If I can use this prop. See that? That's a zero. That's a zero. That's a zero dollar. Zero dollars of his proposal go to the classroom. This symbol, commonly, known, commonly used to denote okay, has in recent years come to be known as a white supremacist hand gesture when used in certain contexts. And people on social media, as well as Democrats in the Minnesota Senate, quickly made the link with Chamberlain's gesture. Chamberlain, who chairs the Senate Education Committee, has retweeted Nazis and promoted white nationalist content in the past. Woo, that's me. That that's my you. story. Well, I'm getting you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> The Minnesota reformer last August reported on how Chamberlain had taken, quote, a keen interest in the book Bronze Age Mindset, which was written anonymously and peddles neo-fascism, racism, and misogyny. The reformer notes that while Chamberlain's public politics are more in line with the mainstream GOP, he follows several neo-Nazis on Twitter and has liked several posts by the book's author. Mm. It should be noted that although the symbol Chamberlain made is a popular white, or a known white power symbol, the ADL says, quote, particular caution should be used when evaluating the OK symbol, end quote, noting that it commonly signals understanding, consent, or approval, and its use in most contexts is entirely harmless. Or zero. Yeah. That, zero. That being said, Chamberlain used the symbol to show zero, not OK. Bring me the news. Reached out to Senator Chamberlain for a comment. It is not known if they got anyone anything back. I don't fucking believe him. I think, especially based on the context that we know of Mr. Chamberlain and you know who he chooses to follow on social media, you know, absent that those facts, maybe I would give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. But yeah. because we know this, that okay symbol. Do either of you know where that came from? Not originally, no. What, like... Other than... Like this I thought it kind of looked like... As, as like a, as like a uh, white supremacist symbol. WP no. is what I've always heard. There's a group of people on 4chan decided that they would make a meme... To fuck with journalists and normies and to things fuck like with, that. Yeah, journalists and normies. So it, it is a white supremacist symbol, but it's also just a fucking joke. So you're saying it's a construct and it's be like, this is a big deal, and then when people report, they say this is a big deal, they say, we got you. Yeah, exactly. Fuckers. Uh, Bronze Age pervert, like, his following, like, the culture, the, the milieu in which he moves is very, is, com is like, directly adjacent, like, even maybe, like, a descendant of that 4chan culture. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, yeah, it's not just he's into Nazis, so of course he's flashing white supremacists. He's like, he's into a very particular subset of white supremacists, mm -hmm. neo-fascists, who would do this. Yeah. Just a sort of, like, JK, 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 unless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earlier I was talking about, you know, going to a prior, like, VFW for a friend's birthday. So I saddle up to the bar. I'm dressed in cargo shorts and a polo shirt because the theme is the 2000s. And I'm dressed like a douchebag from the 2000s, and I've got a backwards baseball cap, and I do look like I'm dressed like a high school boy. <laughs> I saddle up to the bar, and I'm ordering, you know, two gin and tonics for me and my girlfriend, and there are these two, you know, older gentlemen who are clearly regulars. 
having a conversation, and I'm waiting for the bartender to notice me, and um, they stop talking, and then I'm still standing there, and then they look at me, and one of them says, could you fucking cut it out? And I turn to him, and I say, I beg your pardon? And he says, I'm just joking, you shouldn't take it so serious. Which is a conundrum, (laughs) because I definitely heard him say something. And then he immediately denies having said anything serious to me. But the effect is still the same. I'm still feeling scared and unsafe. And, like, this man doesn't want me there and, like, I've done something wrong. Which kind of, I feel like, is the whole far right's MO right now. It's like, if we say the thing, we make people scared, uncomfortable, or angry. And then we can claim that we were joking or we didn't say it. But... Who ends up leaving the bar later? Right, exactly. So, Bronze Age Pervert, right? This guy, Chamberlain, was following. Internet sleuths figured out who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done a lot of looking into him past that, which is going to be a, a future episode. Excellent. I'm very excited about that. I just got to get it together. Um, but one of the things I did was, uh, for some reason, just weird fluke, the, the random shit that you find on the internet when you start looking for people... His high school yearbook is <laughs> entirely in PDF form on Internet Archive for some reason. Oh, dear God. His, his name's Kostin Almaru. He's just fucking awkward. Oh, no. Like, there's this one photo, and it doesn't have a name attached, and it's black and white. It's super low resolution, really grainy. But there's this person wearing this ridiculous tweed jacket and these, like, oversized sunglasses. Oh, and, and they're going like, ugh, like just making some <laughs> ridiculous mo- like body motion. And I laugh because I was riding that same struggle bus. Oh, but the caption of the, of the, uh, of the um, picture is something along the lines of, have you forgotten my underwear today? <gasps> oh no, he's trying so hard to be funny. Yeah, <laughs> and funny. that's Bronze Age Pervert. Yeah. I'm like 95% sure that this... Did you forget my underwear guy is Bronze Age Pervert, like oh. 95% certain. And that's like the sense of humor that is on display when Chamberlain's flashing the OK sign. It's just, I'm I'm just saying stuff. Yeah. You strip away the, the, the offense and the white supremacy and the racism, and what you're left with is just like some awkward fucking middle-aged dude who's really into a 30-something writer... And it's just, like, really into that online culture. And here he is on the floor yeah. of the Minnesota Senate, like... <laughs> Give me attention, oh, oh, boys. Internet culture. Yeah. It's like, oh, good lord. It's like, it's the same as, like, wearing a giant fedora to school. Yes! And it's like, yes! you look yes! at that kid and you're like, it's a nice hat. I'm sure you feel like you're better than everyone else right now. It's a very expensive hat. But what we're sitting here thinking is that poor kid... He doesn't know how stupid he looks. But but also, the hat says, it's the Jews' fault. Ah, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah. It's the, a racist hat. It's a racist hat. <laughs> it's a racist fedora. <laughs> well, there is a lot of desperation, I think, at the, at the heart of this ideology, where it's like, I really have nothing at the core of me that influences what I want to be and what I want to do in this world. Yeah. So the rest is just kind of like trappings that I've glued onto myself in hopes that it comes together and forms some sense of a worldview. Yeah. Some sense of a community and some sense of belonging. Yep. 
and even like some sense of a like a quest for justice. It's like these are all very appealing human things to want, but if you're pulling them out of the garbage, then it's gonna suck. Yeah. Okay. Anything else for the news? That's it. Hot damn. Hot damn. Another one in the books. Yeah. tonight a motley crew uh, a little bit different show tonight than typical we don't really have a main segment you know uh, me and miles one of the things we've talked about a little bit mostly behind the scenes uh, is the way that like I'm a journalist and you are more of an activist organizer yeah I definitely identify as that clearly like we're doing this project together and there's like a, a lot of overlap in our interests but like Something we haven't explored too much is sort of like the limits of that and like sort of like the conflict between like what it means to be a journalist versus being an activist or an organizer. So tonight we're just going to dig into that and talk about that sort of through the lens of some current events and personal stories. We are joined tonight by Nasser Kaz. And Tracy Gunapalan, who together are the neighborhood reporter. Most well, definitely, bro. We're we're blessed to be here. <laughs> so I'm honestly so happy to be actually on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited that you are here. We actually we've known each other for a couple of years and have tried to collaborate in the past. So I think this is the first time we've even been nominally successful. <laughs> yeah, by far. <laughs> <laughs> we are also joined by Hannah Jones. Hannah, would you care to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm Hannah, a non-binary Minnesotan at large, and um, for the past uh, two and a half years or so, I've been working at City Pages, which is the 40-some-year-old alt-weekly of the Twin Cities, um, which has been great. Um, fortunately, City Pages will shut down late October um, due to some of the lack of revenue from the pandemic. Uh, Star Tribune, which is our parent company, made that decision. So now I'm between jobs and I am here. For me, what like really like prompted this is, Miles, we were talking about doing an episode about what's been going on in Brooklyn Center. And I thought this might be a fun angle to get at it from because uh, the police certainly haven't been differentiating between journalists and activists up in Brooklyn Center. Correct. So <laughs> that would be a great frame. To start our conversation, um, I I was up in Brooklyn Center one night. Masser and Tracy, you've been up there most nights. Yeah, we were up there for the first eight nights in a row. Um, as the situation was rapidly deteriorating, I would say, um, <laughs> between the protesters and law enforcement. When we say law enforcement, it's really Operation Station, that specifically. So I think it was April 13th 
Officer Kim Potter, a 26-year vet of the BCPD, uh, shot and killed 20-year-old 20, 20 Dante Wright, who, you know, is a black Minnesotan. The traffic stop was initially over expired tags. He tries to flee the scene. He starts to get back into his car, and as he's doing that, she pulls her gun out, and, you know, she shoots him and kills him, uh, you know, while saying, taser, taser, taser. So the first night we went to actually the scene where he was shot and you know it was a really sobering somber scene of you know people crying people breaking down you know it was really it was a lot of disbelief if I could describe it in one word like how could this happen before the Chauvin trial has even reached a verdict yeah. and the group decided we're going to go to the Brooklyn Police Department the Brooklyn Center Police Department there's like 200 300 protesters on one side and then there was no fence at this time it was just a police department, and you had all these officers standing in front of the police department. At one point, like, protesters dumped out a bunch of garbage in front of them. Behind the police line, there were all these bright lights that were kind of shining a light on the police. So everyone kind of could see because of that. At some point in the night, they decided to just kill the lights. And basically, over the next hour, we would see a couple bottles fly in. By bottles, I should, you know, be clear that they're plastic water bottles. Um, the kind that people hand out at protest, you know, to hydrate yourselves. And we just saw law enforcement react with, I'd say, rubber bullets, tear gas, uh, pepper bullets, some concussive rounds. Um, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, yeah, everything that you said happened. Um, yeah, they were pretty quick to use tear gas and like mace whenever. There wasn't really necessarily like a situation that was escalating where I felt like they were necessarily in danger. Protesters were just saying what they wanted to say and they were just reacting like really quickly. I guess I wonder what you both think, what your interpretation is of like why they enforced such action violently. Did they actually think that protesters were going to try and take over the police station? or The first night or just in general? Just in general. I feel like um, once they put up the fence there really was no like reason for them to be using those weapons. I think the fact that they were just standing by the fence, like when people were just really close to it to start using mace, I just don't see any reason for that because they were not in danger in my opinion. So in, in what night was that? They yeah. broke the fence the second night. Second so night, Monday. On Friday <laughs> A judge issued a restraining order that said the police can't target journalists. And I saw that one photo. Just, I don't know if you get if y'all saw that, but like the, the the guy's wearing like the bright like safety yellow vest that's got press written across it. He's got like a giant camera. There's a guy with like a video camera, like like a professional level video camera. And they're both just like hunched over away from the camera while like a cop just like sprays them with just like this huge cloud of pepper spray. Mm -hmm. And what it was basically because they were really using this stuff indiscriminately. Yeah. The tear gas and the mace. I mean, they're because the press's job is to, you know, tell you what the story is, like tell you what's happening in this location. So I guess the first night I got detained, which was I think the Tuesday of that week. Oh, you were detained? Twice. <laughs> uh, she, she actually was detained once also. <laughs> Yeah, so the first night I got detained, um, they, they, you know, they did their kettling thing where they, ground, they rounded up a bunch of protesters and they started pushing the line this way. And they said everyone, including the press, needs to disperse. They said this is a dispersal order. Um, you know, press also needs to leave. And in my head, all I'm thinking about is the First Amendment. You know, the way we play it as independent without having, like, an attorney or anybody, like, I kind of, I've made some friends with, like, other people who are, like, network reporters. 
So in the back of my head, it's always if I do get arrested, I would like to get arrested in the presence of another reporter. You yeah. know what I mean? So someone else knows that that's happening. Um, and what happened that night was, uh, coincidentally and luckily enough, Tracy was in the car, and they started pushing everyone north uh, on Humboldt Avenue. So they were about two blocks away from the police station at this point. And the line of state troopers just keeps coming and coming and coming. And eventually they stop. And once they stop, I go to a gas station, and usually I have a microphone or something with me. This time I just had a press pass on my phone that I was recording with. And I see the state troopers, they run up to a car and they start banging on the windows with their batons like they're trying to break it. So I go over there and I start recording it. Maybe five seconds later, I feel people's hands on me and I look around and it's like the state troopers. And they're like, you're under arrest, you're under arrest. And I'm like, I'm press. I tell them straight up, I'm press. And they just take me down to the ground, like real quick. You know what I mean? Because there's two of them. And they take me down, you know, they get on my back kind of, and they put me in the zip tie handcuffs. I'm saying, bro, you can look at my chest, my press pass is right there. I'm, you know, uh, he said the press was issued a dispersal order. They take me to the state patrol captain. The same guy who the night before actually had tried to arrest me. He grabbed me from a police line and said, you're under arrest. But when I showed him my press pass, he said, okay, and he let me go. This time, I don't know if you recognize me or what, they take me to the captain, and he's like, this guy says he's press, and the captain looks at me and he says, well, he should have dispersed then. Um, he can go to jail. So then they're like, who hasn't made an arrest yet? And then some, you know, young guys, like, I haven't. And they're like, okay, you can come get this one. So it's like, put me in the back of the cop car, I'm talking to the cop. Uh, I told him, I was like, man, I'm not going to lie, like, I'm really shocked you guys are arresting press. And he's like, bro, I don't make those decisions. I asked him what I'm being charged with, and he said you're being charged with riot. And so I'm in the back of the car for, I'd say, probably around 15 to 20 minutes total. And in those 15 to 20 minutes, I think a lot of things were happening elsewhere in Minneapolis that saved me. Right. Um, in those 15 to 20 minutes, after telling me I was being charged with a riot, uh, something goes over the megaphone, and they're like, actually, we're not going to take him to jail. Uh, just give him a citation for unlawful assembly. So then he, like, deletes it all in front of me, and he, like, writes a citation for unlawful assembly, and he gives it to me. And uh, as I'm walking away, another announcement comes on that says, actually, you're not supposed to even give that to the press. And he's like, don't give citations to the press. And the cop looks at me, and he's like, yo, that's just a tough break for you, my guy. That's what he said. He is like, just go fight it. it. Yeah, he's like, I already wrote it. He was like, um, you know, it's just too late. And uh, the next day, I would find out that same night, they arrested a CNN re reporter or producer for CNN. Mm -hmm. And they were just hella disrespectful to her. That, that was the Asian American woman. Yeah, who was she spoke English. Yeah, I'd actually talk. I've actually yeah, like the reporter that she works with. I've actually talked to him quite a few times. He's a really nice guy, and he does this protest coverage for CNN. And I talked to him about it, and he's like, "Yeah, I had to make a lot of calls that entire night, talking to different people in Hennepin County, the sheriff, the this, the that, to get her released." And I think what happened is, as those calls were happening, they realized they had another guy in the back of a car who's been telling you this entire time that he's press. <laughs> and, you know, by virtue of CNN being there, I think that's how I got out. I was on the outside, and I was, I saw the CNN reporter just, like, on the on the phone, like, super stressed out. Yeah. And I guess that's what eventually <laughs> helped you out. Wow. Almost as though this is incredibly um, not supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the next night, they detained both of us, so. <laughs> ah, there it is. Yeah, because that's. That's the thing, that uh, that restraining order went out on Friday. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so this happened on Tuesday. The story I just told you happened on Tuesday when I was detained the first time. Okay. And then the next day after that is when I think things got even more serious. And that's when I think a lot more people started paying attention to what was happening in the press is because they started actually just destroying equipment um, that night. Mm -hmm. And they destroyed our equipment that night. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys follow Unicorn Riot. Um, they're kind of like a big, you know, independent thing from Minnesota. And Nico, who's the main guy at Unicorn Riot, really nice guy. He's always really helped out the neighborhood reporter and been supportive. We were all actually walking together. And the National Guard was leaving. And uh, actually, you want to tell this? Because I was a little bit, I was kind of further away from it than you were. Yeah, I mean, um, so there were a bunch of National Guard vehicles that were leaving the site. Uh-huh. And there were a couple of demonstrators who were by the church initially, but once they saw the um, vehicles leaving, they went up to them and started like tapping on the on the windows. And so we were trying to record that, and we were facing that when it was happening. And then all of a sudden, we hear a bunch of shouting from behind us, and we look behind us, and it's a line of like state trooper officers, and they start like charging our way. And we're just confused because we're like, we shouldn't run because we're press, right? So if we run, maybe they're going to take us down because they think we're like demonstrators and just trying to flee. So we just kind of like jogged almost. We were like jogging with our equipment up. We were holding it and they still like took us down from the back. They like grabbed my hood and like shoved my back and like pushed us down to the ground. I had a camera on my neck too. And I kept telling them as well that I was press, I'm press, I'm press and they didn't seem to care. They put zip ties on me that were way too tight, and I kept telling them that as well, and they were like, no, you just gotta hold tight. We'll figure stuff out. And yeah, they did the same thing to you yeah. again. Yeah, up to me, they, so they ran up on me, and you know, same thing, you know, I'm press. I literally have a press pass on that's being displayed right now. And, sorry, it's for the smoke. Um, I have a press pass that's being displayed right now, and these guys, this was the one that was actually much more personal and intimate than the last one, because the last, the night before when I got detained, it was very much, I felt like, this is a business decision that these people are making, you know what I mean? Someone just told them to arrest everyone, they're arresting everyone. Like, sorry dude. Yeah, yeah, almost like that, it was almost that kind of vibe to it. But the second night, it was not like that. I got a completely different attitude from these guys. So they take me down, um, and I, I, I was actually holding my microphone that says, you know, it's like a lapel, like neighborhood reporter microphone. So they, you know, grab my arms behind me, they take me down, and this time they actually like, put their body weight on top of me as they're arresting me. And it's two guys, and they're like, what is this? And it's like, it's a microphone. And I didn't hear or see what happened to it. And then they're like, what is this? And it's like, it's a battery pack. And then I never saw the battery pack again. But, so then they're, they're zip-tying me with their body weight on me. And I'm telling them I'm press, I'm like, I have a press pass. And this guy, he like gets in my face. This third officer comes over, and he's like, that's not always gonna save you, is it? Cool. Talking about the press pass. That, um, I just got, I got chills. I mean, like, I shouldn't be surprised, but that is, that is absolutely bleak shit. <clears throat> yeah. So then they stand me up. I, I was, they, they got her and the unicorn ride guy kind of together at one point, but I was, I was further down. So these three guys were talking to me, and I turned to one of them, and I'm like, can I talk to one of your supervisors? And the guy's like, what? And I was like, can I talk to one of your supervisors? And he's like, he starts laughing, and he's like, get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, bro, I wish I could. Like, I'm literally handcuffed. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so then they walked me over uh, to her. And that was, you know, quite a sad scene to see. Uh, um, but the same thing was happening with the Unicorn Riot reporter as well. He kept saying, like, I would like to speak to your captain. I need to speak to him right now. And they would just ignore him. And they'd be, like, laughing and, like, just talking. And it was just very strange. But before letting us go, they did do this thing that I have never seen before, mm-hmm. where they're like, can you guys all actually just wait right here for a second and let's get a picture of your faces. Like, you know, like can you pull the mask down? Let's get a picture of all of your faces with your press passes. 
And they said we're going to put it in the intrepid system, right? And they said we're doing this so we don't take you guys down again by accident. But you, you just super <laughs> took us down on purpose. Yeah. Right? Um, so then basically we're walking away to try to find our equipment. And uh, we find our microphone in like several pieces. Uh, like about 15, 20 feet from where they arrested me. Um, they took the Unicorn Ride guys. Like, so they had, they're, they're a really noticeable brand. If you guys follow them, they have this bright yellow like microphone thing, this lapel thing. Mm -hmm. They took that off his mic. And it's really, it's something of worth note because it's not the kind of thing that just slips off a mic. You know, he told me he thought it was like a trophy to them. There is no false, you know, premise of respect to the press. Right from the beginning, they were just ready to like come at media. Right. A note on here, it's really relevant to talk about the George, like what the shit that went down during the George Floyd protests. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to bring that up and ask you guys, like, you said that that was kind of when you got started doing reporting. What is your your reason for for reporting. At the U, I majored in history, right? And, and all you have to study is what people recorded at the time. Mm. And throughout history, we've seen so many incidents happen, and then the narrative around them has completely changed the incident. Mm. Um, so when I saw what happened to George Floyd, and when I saw, you know, how the media and how the press has treated protests in the past, of a very, you know, there's no context to the chaos, basically. Um, I really wanted to be able to add context to the chaos, to honestly be as objective as I can be and just document what was happening and report it to whoever wants to listen. Um, we're working on that right now, actually working on a documentary called 12 Months in Minneapolis. It was going to end with the trial, but you know, then they killed somebody else. They killed Dante Wright, so it kind of, the cycle kind of starts again. Right, right. I was so optimistic that Chapter 12 would be called Justice. And it would be, you know, Chauvin found guilty, and it, we could talk about just Minneapolis reacting to that. But since they killed Dante Wright, it kind of proves to you that it's not really justice, right? It's just a small glimmer of accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I ask Tracy the same question? Well, I'm, I'm passionate about the photojournalism side of it. Okay. Um, I initially just wanted to support what he was doing, but after being out there... Um, it's just you see all these moments that are really powerful and like it doesn't just feel like it but it's a really big moment in history and I feel like it's a it's my honor to capture something like that so that's why I really enjoy doing what we do oh. same question to you Anna. oh for sure um, I mean I think that my interest in journalism probably started way back when I was in high school and it was definitely not for any reason concerned with history or even with the benefit of humankind, or with, you know, elevating people through social justice. Um, I had an English assignment where they said, go follow a group of people that you don't hang out with and write um, an ethnography on them. And um, I spent uh, something like 10 hours or so in the NICU just watching these mostly women go to work, really just sitting around and being forced to watch people um, that I didn't know just go through their lives made me a better person and a more sympathetic person and that kept calling me back so I mean flash forward to now it, it, it feels very natural that you know watching the things that have happened in the area that I live um, that now I, I have a lot more interest in and a lot more love for people in general which it's, it's kind of what keeps you going you? How'd you get into your game? My activism has kind of always been media work, you know, 
I guess I have just recognized slowly how motivated people are by narrative. You mm -hmm. know, what motivates people, what gets them off their ass and into the streets usually is something that's compelling, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see enough of it for the issues that really matter, you know what I mean? And so that's what I was drawn to, was kind of learning where things are at and learning how to report them in the way that motivates people the most to try and do something about it, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So. Journalism to spur action. Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about what conflicts or what meshes well in terms of activism and journalism, I'm more on, like, the side of the best journalism is can, can be advocacy, you know, and the best advocacy can come in the form of journalism. Mm -hmm. They play in different, with different rules that have been kind of determined a long time ago, you know. By people who probably never saw this shit coming. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I do see, you know, I don't know, I just think that there's a lot more <clears throat> that they feed off of each other with than they do that detracts them away from each other. Mm. Let's, uh, let's dial down a little bit, because we talked about how the police were treating the press in Brooklyn Center. I did want to add, really quick, because this is worthwhile too, is that there have been no disciplinary actions taken against any uh, police officer for ab abusing the press, specifically. Mm -hmm. I don't think any period. During the George Floyd. During the George Floyd. Yeah. My colleague Susan Du for City Pages got taken in and um, the response was reprinting her press pass but like triple the size and her mugshot was the photo. Whoa. It was salty and I enjoyed it, but also <laughs> deeply problematic that it needed to happen. Like right now we can see like a lot of similarities. Like, I mean, on one hand, we're clearly in like journalists and activists like are working in the same space, like physically in the case of these protests. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, uh, I guess you'd say like more of like an ideological space. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to get too heady. I want to keep it grounded here. But like, I think it's fairly uncontroversial <laughs> to say that journalism is very closely linked to democracy. It's about facilitating democracy, about making it happen, um, making it possible. And and like the the activists I know and the organizers I know, they describe their work in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. Like we do have like a lot. We are working in this same like social space as well like for the journalists here <laughs> sorry miles but uh the journalists here what's been your experience interacting with activists i mean from the very beginning i feel like you know a lot of my onboarding into various news organizations is a lot of older editors continually telling me to hold organizers feet to the fire more which has been an interesting experience because, you know, naturally, yes, you should always speak truth to power, even if that means collectivist power, even if that means, you know, power mm -hmm. from a grassroots organization. Um, but I really don't see that being applied as much in general to sources like law enforcement, yeah. um, who we have a track record, you know, especially now. Historically, they lie to us all the time. Like, at least as often as politicians do, and mm -hmm. we know how journalists feel about politicians. 
I do think that journalism needs to reckon with the fact that it treats law enforcement in particular like it's some kind of a more qualified source. Like it doesn't need to be evaluated in the same way that we would evaluate the claims of people who are organizing or people who are activists. I definitely think that there is uh, a necessary conflict there between journalists and their subjects, but it's a matter of who gets to be a subject and who gets to be a source, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. One, one note I wrote down earlier says, activists don't have an obligation to report on things that they think might be detrimental to their cause mm-hmm. or distract from a particular narrative. Yes. Journalists, on the other hand, are obligated or at least expected to report all the facts even if they go against a particular narrative or a movement that they subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of kind of what your work is doing as far to the degree in which I understand it is you're you're trying to find that line between reporting the objective facts, which is obviously important to get out there, you don't want to lie to people, but also you still want to be on the side of justice. Is this is this feeling that I get from you both. You both seem moved by the happenings in the city and want to advance the cause you know so it's it's a fine line to try and find you know find balance i think i think yeah i agree i think that's a really i think that's a absolutely perfect you know explanation of it and i think i mean when you go to you know one social groups events continuously throughout a year right you just get to naturally know the people who run that social organization mm-hmm. The leadership, you get to know the marshals, the people who are providing security, just just by being there, you know. And when you ask people tough questions, it can lead to some uncomfortable moments. But I think those uncomfortable moments are best, are the best possible thing for both people involved, because you're not only functioning to get you know information that you can post and share with people. You're actually, if you're doing it in a way that's honest and objective, you're actually making that person critically examine the things that they've said and the plans that they have, which ultimately. If they're good plans, if they're good ideas, will only help to you know expand those plans and evolve those ideas. Mm-hmm. And help sharpen you as a journalist too. Exactly. I think that's the other thing where we talk about press, and it's kind of what you brought up earlier, is that at least in professional press, there is this expectation that what you're doing, in some way, shape, or form, is going to create revenue. Mm-hmm. And what's great for revenue. Is, and it's no fault of the reporter or the journalist, but what's great for revenue is drama. It is explosions and it is fire. Conflict, yes. Yeah. Man bites dog. Exactly, exactly. It's that kind of stuff. And that's just, that's what it is. And that's why I think if you're independently, you can function a little bit differently. Which obviously you're not making the same amount of money. Often most independent reporters aren't making any money. Um, <laughs> but that gives you that openness. That gives you that eye of, you know what I mean? Like, you know, really, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really care what you say. I'm actually genuinely just curious what you have to say, no matter what it is. Yeah. There's literally no dog in this race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I got I got a contrasting. I got a... <laughs> so this happened the other night. Uh, the night that the verdict came down in the Chauvin trial. I was down George Floyd Square, and I was just trying to get, like, basic details. There had been, like, this big event, prayer gathering. There were, like, half a dozen people speaking. It was a really big turnout. And some of that's because, like, the verdict had just come down. But, like, after the fact, I see somebody uh, with a hoodie on that I recognize the hoodie as, like, a, a particular social justice org that's involved in that space. So I started talking to this woman. I was like, hey... I'm just trying to figure out, did you help organize this event? I'm just trying to figure out basic details. 
um, like who, who, who put it together. <laughs> and, and she just started insisting. She was like, nobody put it together. It just happened. And I was like, well, somebody put together the speaker list. Jesse fucking Jackson was here. Yeah. <laughs> somebody put together the speaker list. And she was like, no. See, like, people just came to us and asked if they could talk. And then we said yes. It was like, okay, but who's the we saying yes? Who's <laughs> us? It's the community. It's the whole community. And then, uh... Who's representing the community? Very good question. The one I asked was, um, how do you define this community? Like, who is this community? It's all of us. It's us. It's all of us. It's anyone who wants to be here. And it's like... No! <laughs> like, complex multi-speaker events don't just spontaneously generate. I would disagree. I've seen things come together out of nowhere, ad hoc. People are passing the microphone around, you know, one person steps up to, like, MC more or less, and they keep everyone to two minutes, you know what I mean? So at George Floyd Square, I could easily see that happening because it's mostly a self-organized, autonomous space. Mm -hmm. And because all the people flooded that space that day, they knew that people were going to be wanting to hear speakers, so they were probably, someone was probably wrangling them. But it's basically like an open mic for anybody who's got something to say. Yeah. But, but open mics are still organized. Like, on one hand, I hear what you're saying. But, like, I'm also working on a story right now about an astroturf group that claims to be a community group. And is, like, actually just working hand-in-hand -hand with, the, with the police department. The, the guy who like leads it doesn't live in Minneapolis. Mm. So I admit that I'm feeling like pretty paranoid. At the same time, it's like like what you were saying is like like somebody has to ask like tough questions um, of organizers of activists. And it's not just to hold them accountable, but opaque systems <laughs> are open to exploitation. I've seen a few, like, wholly astroturfed, you know, created out of thin air protests that have happened before here in the cities. Uh, Logan, I might have told you this story before, but uh, it was after Philando Castile was murdered, and there was an event page for a protest that was supposed to happen at the St. Anthony Police Department, right? So two or three thousand people say that they're going to this protest. It's organized by a group called Don't Shoot. Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Has anyone else heard of a don't shoot here? Not since this very minute. No, yeah, that's because it didn't exist. Oh, mm. Definitely did not exist. And uh, I messaged the page and I said, who, who is on the ground organizing this? You know, thousands of people showing up in front of a police department during uh, the peak of the anti-police brutality movement could be pretty dangerous. And I got a message back that said, Hey there, we're organizing with the Green Party of Minnesota. Um. Right. <laughs> SDS, or Students for a Democratic Society. Okay. University of Minnesota. I know them. And uh, Tool. I talked to all these organizations. I said, have you heard of this? Are you a part of this organizing? And they said no. Oh, no. So, doing a little bit of digging, we discovered that, you know, the page or the, the, the address that was linked to the Facebook page went to, like, a, a P.O. box in New Jersey. Then oh. we, we tracked the P.O. registration, or someone else did, and that was registered to uh, 
St. Petersburg, Russia. Wow. Oh, I only said St. Petersburg is the, is the Minnesota of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely bad faith actors, mm -hmm. both foreign and domestic, that are looking to take advantage of these situations, and it's worth it to be vigilant, I think. If I could just, I mean, this isn't, this isn't about the larger point you're making, which is a good point, I agree with. George Floyd Square itself has seen a lot of people come in with really nefarious intention. Like, I don't know how much you've, like, seen this or not, but, like, there's whole Reddit groups and chats dedicated to how to infiltrate George Floyd Square and how to act like you're this, act like you're that. Like, over the summer, there's a U of M med student who was supposed to get his white coat who yeah. just walked in, you know, was just like, hey, I'm just trying to see what's going on. And then he just got close to the mural and just whipped out some spray paint real quick, drew some X's all over George Floyd's ah, eyes. that's right. Oh, my God. And ran away. So, like, I agree, people have to answer tough questions, but I think George Floyd Square is a very unique space in that by being so open to the community, they're also very open to threats. Mm -hmm. And that leads to... Vulnerability. Exactly. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. George Floyd Square is a unique space. It has the possibilities for so much politically, but it also is extremely vulnerable. There needs to be a a formal plan to memorialize this space and abide by the community's demands, you know. Mm. Yeah. Again, <laughs> I don't mean to be tricked, but like, who is the community? I know for a fact there are organized groups involved down there. I, I, I agree with you in general about what everybody's saying about George Floyd Square, but who are they? <laughs> you kind of need to see the receipts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, I haven't done a ton of, like, looking and digging either. So, like, again, I don't mean to, like, this is not me impugning them. This is just, like, this is an illustration yeah. of what I mean. That, like, <clears throat> I don't know who they are. <laughs> they are trying to build power with specific demands. And, um, and I'm curious. And the vibe I got talking to this activist was that uh, they were really, really trying to hold on to the narrative. Like, they had a story they were telling. Mm -hmm. So in their story, you know, they weren't talking about Isaiah. Uh, that's that uh, Faith in Minnesota. That uh, That's an organization yep. who I know for a fact, uh, like Janae Bates, mm -hmm. was one of the MCs of this event. Um, Spoke with her a couple of times. Yeah. And um, she's still with Isaiah, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, Isaiah was there. And they're very politically active. They're not, like, a church group. They are an organizing group. I like, like don't, again, don't get me wrong. And then, again, this, this organization from this, uh, this person I was speaking to, um, I assume Reclaim the Block, has, like, people there. Also um, dope. I like them, but, like, there's something that really bothers me about keeping the names off of it. Um, I was talking to a couple activists couple organizers actually about a month ago um he told me like he just pointed around and i was i was interviewing him and he said yeah me and him and him and him and him we and her like we all got doxxed um by like the oath keepers of minnesota or whatever yeah. this twitter page i'm sure you guys if you're watching right wing you probably know about it. it's called antifa watch so they've arrested what like 267 people or so far in just the brooklyn center protest so what this antifa watch twitter page does is it just posts up all their mug shots and we actually interviewed one of the people who that happened to, and she's like, I have no idea, like, what the hell they're talking about. I went to this protest to protest, and now I'm getting all these, like, texts and calls, and I've been doxxed thoroughly. 
and they're saying I'm part of some like evil like ring of people. And I think that's why it's so important to have objective observers there who are just going to report what's happening. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, you get, you know, nonsense like that. And you're like, oh shit, maybe that person is Antifa. You know, <laughs> we don't know that she's not. Part of the jaded nature of being local media in the past year and a half or so is watching a lot of national media outlets and also just a lot of people in general take photos and, and interviews that people on the ground have done and then just like completely take them and put whatever they want onto them. Mm -hmm. It's the whole movement has become a sort of Rorschach for whoever the hell wants to make something out of it. And it's never been more important for people who are invested in the community to be there and be acting as observers and somehow like maintaining enough of a distance to remain credible and yet also maintaining enough of a closeness to remain invested, which is a weird type rope to walk. I, th I think the point. Um, I can articulate it maybe better than I did before. Get it. Um, like this, this particular activist, I don't, I don't really like fault them. It just illustrates how my interests are not theirs. Right. That, like you're talking about, they are concerned with security, the political blowback, and personal safety. But it's not my job to worry about those things. You know. Mm -hmm. It's definitely your job safety. to ask the question. Yeah, that's definitely true. The The thing I wanted to ask you, Sarah, you told me about getting comments where people were upset at you for, like, having a camera at protests and showing people's faces. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the nature of journalism and how technology is influencing it as we go, right? I mean, the entire concept of live streaming is so new that there's no really handbook of journalism you can look back at. I got a degree yeah. in journalism when I was in India, right? And for that degree, you go through, like, what are the ethics of journalism? No part of that addresses live streaming, right? I mean, there's no, like, textbook on how to live stream or how to cover a protest in 2021. Um, so, I, yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, the comments that we got, like, when we go live at some of these events are, you know what I mean, only show the cops. Or if you're not showing the cops, you know, pan down to the, to the concrete, show them the road, show them the street. We're here to document a movement. And you can't really document people or document a movement if you're keeping the camera on half of it. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you're getting half of the story of what's happening. They shoot tear gas, and it's like, oh yeah, that's going somewhere. It could hit a child behind me, but we won't know because I'm, I'm not showing anyone in the crowd. Right. And I, I don't want to make any kind of general sweeping statements, but the people who say make those comments are very seldomly actually out there doing the work. Mm. They're very seldomly on the front lines with you, right? Like, I'm on the front line. I'm getting tear gas right with all these protesters around me. Yeah. I'm getting maced. My equipment's getting destroyed. But I'm here because the, the state, the government, is responsible for the death of another black person. That's why we're there. So I guess it's just like overcoming that and deciding, you know what, I can't, you know, you can't please everybody. If some people want you to only point at the ground, you know what I mean, follow somebody else. That's all I can say at this point about it. So I won't be afraid to own maybe the more extreme position out of all of us tonight and say that I quit live streaming because I wanted to keep the movement safe. Mm -hmm. We obviously know that the cops use this footage, and those are my friends out there, you know what I mean? Those are my neighbors, those are my mentors and my elders, like, I, I want to do what I can to keep the movement safe and effective before everything else, for me, you know? And that's something that I've slowly evolved to over time. I know in places like Portland, where there is a thriving anarchist community, um, of which I would identify as an anarchist too. So those are my people out there as well. And 
they have taken a very strong stance against live streamers at their protests, going so far as to smash your fucking phone if, you know, you, you bring it there. And I'm not saying I necessarily endorse that action or the hostility, but I do understand the notion behind it. It is, you know, a misguided way of going about it, but we're all learning, you know, as we go about this mm -hmm. journey. I think it makes perfect sense from an activist perspective, definitely. I also think it makes perfect sense for journalists to be there and be like, if I don't witness this, then anybody is going to be able to say anything happened here. Right. Hopefully, truth and justice will win out if people know the whole picture, which mm -hmm. is a grossly optimistic statement based <laughs> on how people relate to news and relate to footage. But yeah, I, I do think that this is just too well-intentioned and two incredibly necessary points of view that just don't align. It's tricky. Yeah, maybe not perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can do when you're live streaming. Obviously, you want to be mindful of, like, people and, like, make sure that they feel safe mm -hmm. when they come out to protest. Um, but with a live stream, that's difficult. With photography, it's, we've tried to facilitate that when people send us a message like, hey, I'm in this picture, I would appreciate it if you took it down, we'll take it down. Mm -hmm. But a live stream is just to show everybody what's going on in the moment. Mm -hmm. And we can't, in the moment, not be giving you the full picture of what's happening. Right. So. Yeah. If I'm at the St. Paul Capitol, or if I'm at, I don't even, if you're not part of the 3rd Precinct, if I'm anywhere really in Minneapolis, this is my community. These mm -hmm. are my streets. Mm -hmm. And no one not the police, not the protesters, nobody is going to tell me what I can and can't do on these streets. Mm. I'm doing this as a person of color in documenting this movement about people of color because it directly affects me. We were at a protest. Um, it was by the Hennepin County Government Center, and this was probably like six, maybe seven months ago. And this white person comes up to me. And, you know, I don't want to, they, they say to me, they're like, uh, what do you do? Who are you with? And I'm like, I have no problem answering these questions, right? I'm happy to be like, you know, we'll go on IG right now and follow the neighborhood reporter. Yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I tell him, I'm like, yo, you know, I'm local independent. Um, he's like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, are you left-leaning though? And I was like, I wouldn't really say that. And then he's like, but okay, you don't have to say it, but like between you and I, you say you're definitely like a little bit left. And like, I don't know who this person is at all, right? And at this point, I feel like this random you know, person's coming up to press me about who I am in my own city. And I'm like, bro, no. I was like, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I was like, I, I would say, I, would, I was like, I'd say I'm, I try to be as objective as I possibly can be, which is what I always say, which is true, which is I honestly try to be as objective as I can be when I'm reporting. So this person's like, you know, if things start happening, don't start recording. And I'm like, I'm like, bro, who are you? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know who the fuck you are. Like, why would I take lessons from some random... I won't call him a bozo, but why would I take lessons from some random bozo who's coming up to me trying to press me? Don't want to call him bozo, but I will. <laughs> this is not the Matrix. Yeah. How are you going to come up to me in my own city that I'm reporting on, that I'm on the front lines of every single day? I know every single person who's leading this march, right? Yeah. And to me, and I don't know if it's just because that person was white or what, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. that, pissed me, that pissed me the fuck off, to be honest. As a Muslim in this country, we don't talk about our political beliefs. And the last time someone pressed me about my politics was when I was going through TSA, oh. right? That was the last time that happened to me. So to have that same experience when I'm doing my thing in my own city, 
that just doesn't sit right with me. To have someone kind of tell me how to do what I'm doing in my own city, it just does not sit right with me, and I don't think it ever will. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to go through this. No, it's cool, but I understand what you're saying, though. From an activist perspective, like, that does make sense. Right, and there are, there are people, like, from completely other sides of the spectrum who will try to enforce those rules when you are a journalist. Yeah. I, I, one thing I thought of when you were saying that was just, like, what type of protest is this that we're covering? Mm -hmm. Do we know that a, a direct action is being planned? If that's the case, then maybe we can embed with the organizers and cover the direct action portion of it and make sure that that side of the story gets told, you know what I mean, from a, a responsible place. So I guess that's just a couple other you know, notes that I think of in terms of how to cover these things responsibly, but also kind of maintain objectivity at the same time. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, from the experience that, you know, I've been in the suburbs most of the time. Protests happen, but they are not nearly as coordinated, nor are they nearly as, you know, large. In my time at City Pages, I've had editors that are like, oh yeah, you're going to the anti-Trump rally protest? Yeah, make sure you stay after it's over. That's when the quote-unquote fireworks happen. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> I essentially did not know um, what was going to happen, what I had signed up for, um, who was planning to do what, and for what reason. And... I definitely think I could have used a bit more information before going in with no visible microphone that anybody could see, and just like a lanyard that was clipped to my jeans. Um, uh, I do think that a lot of the times journalists are a little under-equipped to understand exactly who's at play at what time and where, and I do think a little bit of coordination and at least um, information could be beneficial to all parties involved. Yeah i think it's sorry just one more thing about this topic of you know recording people and you know their activities and what kind of activity is planned do it we've gotten you know dms from people i, I don't know if i feel comfortable using the phrase antifa for anybody really specifically someone of that persuasion yeah someone of that persuasion they hit the neighborhood reporter up right in our like official dms and they're like yo we're having this event can you come and like, can you do your thing at this event? And the event was literally just to cause damage to a police station. Ha! You know oh. what I mean? Yeah. And then it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. There's a way to do it responsibly and to make sure that people stay safe, but the message of the action still gets out. I think if the message is only going to be what the activists want the message to be, mm -hmm. then the activists have to do that themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think if they want the press to be a part of it, if they want journalists whose job it is to ask questions and to do things that you might not like, if they want that presence to be there, then there has to be some compromise of, okay, I guess I will not be able to completely control what you <laughs> The narrative. Exactly. The it's narrative like, is no longer under control. See. I just had uh, some... Some activists pitched me a story, and I was like, yeah, no, I'm very interested in that. Um, and they were like, great. The only thing is, you have you can't publish until we tell you you can. And I was like, Hot damn, I was oh like, dear. All I <laughs> responded was like, I can't agree to that. <laughs> and I'm glad. I'm glad I was polite, because so far they seem to be all right. I do think, you know, even furthermore than the ethical quandary that is very real and very present in this conversation, it's also just, you know basic media literacy is not um, something that is given to everybody um, universally as part of our education system. Um, the more upfront you can be 
at the very beginning, before shit goes down, I think the more goodwill you'll end up having from people who are not necessarily in your media organization. That's at least, you know, that's the kind of success that I've had with people, is explaining up front, no, no, you can't see the shit that I do before I publish it. It's, <laughs> it's just not something I can do for you. And it's not because I don't like you, it's because I can't do it for anyone. Okay, not to shut us down, but I think we are about at time. We, we're pretty close to the two-hour mark, if we haven't hit it already. Wow. Um, Damn, anyway. y'all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could go around and say your last thought. Big takeaway, or like... The awesome insight that's just going to pull everything together that we've just been saying. Plug your shit Shoot. if you want to. <laughs> oh yeah, and also plug your shit. <laughs> um, I think my takeaway from this conversation, if I can go first, that's cool. Do it. Yeah. My big takeaway from this conversation, especially uh, in uh, talking to you about you know the, the distinct relationship between activists and journalists, is if you're doing journalism, and again, this is you know a personal opinion, if you're doing journalism the right way, you're able to form partnerships with these activists in a way that's still objective. Mm -hmm. If you're forming a relationship with someone and you just can't ask them tough questions, it's only like a one-sided fan affair, then I think you're not probably suited to do, you know, the, the same thing as objective journalism. If you're doing objective journalism, you need to have good relationships with these people. Mm -hmm. And the only way to build that trust up is by being there consistently day after day after day, reporting on every part of the movement. It's not just when things, you know, go up in flames, but reporting on when there's like a legislative action. When there's, you know, when there's someone is racist to one of the movement leaders at a restaurant, every single part of it, you know what I mean? That's how you build trust of those people, and that's how you get those interviews, and that's how you can actually inform the base of people you're talking to more. Um, if that so if that kind of journalism sounds interesting, I highly recommend checking out the Neighborhood Reporter <laughs> on Instagram, Ow! the NBHD on Twitter, the Neighborhood Reporter on Facebook, and the Neighborhood Reporter on YouTube. Not to forget theneighborhoodreporter.com. <laughs> and no, he's not the only one recommending it. You saw it work. I think it's really important to be involved at all ends of um, events and like activism. Just it's important to get the full story in order to ensure that you're reporting on the truth and also keeping people safe. That's mm -hmm. what I've. Well, I just want to thank you both for taking time and talking to us. You know, it's it's pretty awesome to see new people with shared interests. You know, I mean, we I feel like we've got a lot in common, and um, yeah, as far as you know, final thoughts. I guess is the average person who picks up their phone and goes to the protests. Are, are they a reporter? Are they a journalist? You know, where is that line? At what point does one become a journalist? At what point does one become an activist? Um, one final thing, real quick. Yeah. Get it. I, I'm a I'm a straight cis, but you know, the, the question was in an article. It says, when the rights of trans people are under attack, is it wrong for a transgender journalist to speak up for equality? Mm. Or when the president says that there are very fine people on both sides at a white nationalist rally, is it objectivity or activism to call that racist? Those two questions really left me thinking, and I don't have the answers. I think there's, you know, it's a much more blurry and uh, 
undefined thing than, than we, we want it to be. We want to be able to fit things into boxes and put little bows on them and be able to explain things nice and cleanly, but that's just not how, that's not the nature of journalism nor activism, you know? So, yeah, I guess I fall back on, you know, my, my position that there's a lot more that they share than they have that split them apart, and I'm gonna just kind of continue to hone in on those things, you know? Um, as a non-straight non-cis, um, <laughs> I do think that um, one thing that I can say about journalism with any degree of confidence, and it's probably the only thing, is that it is not um, a profession befitting to be certain. And um, if you're a part of this, uh, whether you are an amateur, whether you are a professional, long time, short time, um, it will be... Uh, it will behoove you to be prepared to deliberate about these things and to constantly feel like you are in doubt and to constantly wonder whether or not you are doing the right thing. Um, and if you're feeling insecure about that and if you're feeling a lot of doubt, it, it's probably, you know, not a bad sign. Um, it's, it's part of being human and it's definitely part of journalism. So, I, I'm, I'm very glad we're having this discussion because it, it is worth two hours plus <laughs> trying to work it out and I'm glad everybody's here to do it and um, if you want some really old tweets you could go to at reporter Jones um, you can't go to city pages because the website doesn't exist anymore but Hennepin County is doing its best to preserve it so keep an eye on the Hennepin County library system um, other than that if you want some dope weeby comic shit you can go to at um, monstrous comic on Instagram and it's nothing to do with journalism, but it is very fun to look at. <laughs> I, I want to take the, the opposite position as my, as, uh, my now longtime co-host. Um, I mean, I, I don't really. Uh, I, I agree that they have a lot in common. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why this show works. I mean, we haven't even talked about this because there is so much overlap in what we want to accomplish. And, you know, most journalists want their work to have an impact. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want this to have an impact. Like, is it a... Does that make this an activist project for me? I don't know. But there are, like, really important differences that we also need to hold up. We're all trying to build power, but, like, journalists are trying to build, like, a very different kind of power. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've talked about, you know journalists' role in maintaining a democracy. Mm -hmm. So is, is that the type of power that you're referring to, trying to restore faith in democracy as it's kind of eroded in America? No, actually I think activists are working for that. I think journalists facilitate that to happen. Mm. But but journalists, I think like the power that journalists are trying to build is like, you know, it goes back to that, it was in the Columbia Journalism Review. It was, it was about how rich people, like, it used Elon Musk and Donald Trump as the example, can use Twitter to just completely circumvent the traditional press. And because of that, the press is losing its power in society. And it ended with just, like, this beautiful line about how, like, if you've ever tried to negotiate a, an interview with a touchy subject, you know, like, that they only do that if they're afraid of you. And, like, the only way journalists can make rich people afraid of them, or powerful people afraid of them, is by... Uh, metaphorically putting heads on pikes. Mm -hmm. I think I think the power that journalism is trying to build is is a little bit more brutal 
than, than what activists are trying to do. I think activists are really trying to build actual democracy that's like rooted in like a majority opinion. And I think journalists are... are in it for blood. <laughs> I mean, basically. I think I mean, there's like some really like... I think I think journalism is a pretty cynical profession, <laughs> inherently. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just the cynic. I don't know. I think so. <laughs> oh my god. But, we can all agree that Elon Musk sucks, though, right? Objectively, <laughs> as journalists. Objectively, we can agree. He's not going to Mars. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> thank you, everyone. music this week is from the void and hashtag jet black challenge both by thinkwise that's t-h-n-k-w-y-z-e thinkwise also known as marcus joe thinkwise is a native hip-hop artist from seattle washington you can follow thinkwise on soundcloud and our theme song is as always shameless filler by dan carroll with wesley mitchell on drums <laughs>